Section three of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi. Chapter two. A Fool's Paradise. Part one. Ah, my dear sir, I cannot tell you how poor we all were in France in that year of grace 1816, so poor indeed that a dish of roast pork was looked upon as a feast, and a new gown for the wife an unheard-of luxury. The war had ruined everyone. Twenty-two years, and hopeless humiliation and defeat at the end of it. The emperor handed over to the English, a Bourbon sitting on the throne of France, crowds of foreign soldiers still lodging it all over the country, until the country had paid its debts to her foreign invaders, and thousands of our own men still straggling home through Germany and Belgium, the remnants of Napoleon's grand army, ex-prisoners of war, or scattered units, who had found their weary way home at last, shoeless, coatless, half-starved, and perished from cold and privations, unfit for housework, for agriculture, or for industry, fit only to follow their fallen hero, as they had done through a quarter of a century, to victory and to death. With me, sir, business in Paris was almost at a standstill. I, who had been the confidential agent of two kings, three democrats and one emperor, I, who had held diplomatic threads in my hands, which had caused thrones to totter and tyrants to quake, and who had brought more criminals and intriguers to book than any other man alive, I now sat in my office in the Rue Donneau, day after day, with never a client to darken my doors even whilst crime and political intrigue were more rife in Paris than they had been in the most corrupt days of the Revolution and the Consulate. I told you, I think, that I had forgiven Theodore his abominable treachery in connection with the secret naval treaty, and we were the best of friends, that is, outwardly, of course. Within my inmost heart I felt, sir, that I could never again trust that shameless traitor, that I had in very truth nurtured a serpent in my bosom. But I am proverbially tender-hearted. You will believe me or not, I simply could not turn that vermin out into the street. He deserved it. Oh, even he would have admitted when he was quite sober, which he was not often, that I had every right to give him the sack to send him back to the gutter whence he had come, there to grub once more for scraps of filth, and to stretch a half-frozen hand to the charity of the passers-by. But I did not do it, sir. No, I did not do it. I kept him on at the office as my confidential servant. I gave him all the crumbs that fell from mine own table, and he helped himself to the rest. I made as little difference as I could in my intercourse with him. I continued to treat him almost as an equal. 
The only difference I did make in our mode of life was that I no longer gave him bed and board at the hostelry where I lodged in Passy, but placed the chair bedstead in the anteroom of the office permanently at his disposal, and allowed him five sous a day for his breakfast. But owing to the scarcity of business that now came my way, Theodore had little or nothing to do, and he was in very truth eating his head off and with that grumble grumble all the time threatening to leave me if you please to leave my service for more remunerative occupation as if anyone else would dream of employing such an out-at-elbows mudlark a jailbird sir if you'll believe me thus the spring of eighteen sixteen came along spring sir with its beauty and its promises and the thoughts of love which come eternally in the minds of those who have not yet fully done with youth. Love, sir, I dreamt of it on those long weary afternoons in April, after I had consumed my scanty repast, and whilst Theodore in the anteroom was snoring like a hog. At even, when tired out and thirsty, I would sit for a while outside a humble café on the outer boulevards. I watched the amorous couples wander past me on their way to happiness. At night I could not sleep, and bitter were my thoughts, my revilings against a cruel fate that had condemned me, a man with so sensitive a heart and so generous a nature, to the sorrows of perpetual solitude. That, sir, was my mood, when on a never-to-be-forgotten afternoon, toward the end of April, I sat mooning disconsolately in my private room, and a timid rat-tat at the outer door of the apartment roused Theodore from his brutish slumbers. I heard him shuffling up to the door, and I hurriedly put my necktie straight and smoothed my hair, which had become disordered despite the fact that I had only indulged in a very abstemious déjeuner. When I said that the knock at my door was in the nature of a timid rat-rat, I did not perhaps describe it quite accurately. It was timid, if you will understand me, and yet bold, as coming from one who might hesitate to enter, and nevertheless feels assured of welcome. Obviously a client, I thought. Effectively, sir, the next moment my eyes were gladdened by the sight of a lovely woman, beautifully dressed, young, charming, smiling, but to hide her anxiety, trustful and certainly wealthy. The moment she stepped into the room I knew that she was wealthy. There was an air of assurance about her which only those are able to assume who are not pestered with creditors. She wore two beautiful diamond rings upon her hands outside her perfectly fitting glove, and her bonnet was adorned with flowers so exquisitely fashioned that a butterfly would have been deceived and would have perched on it with delight. Her shoes were of the finest kid, shiny at the toes like tiny mirrors, whilst her dainty ankles were framed in the filmy lace frills of her pantalets. Within the wide brim of her bonnet her exquisite face appeared like a rosebud, nestling in a basket. 
She smiled when I rose to greet her, gave me a look that sent my susceptible heart aflutter, and caused me to wish that I had not taken that bottle-green coat of mine to the Mont de Piété only last week. I offered her a seat, which she took, arranging her skirts about her with inimitable grace. One moment, I added, as soon as she was seated, and I am entirely at your service. I took up a pen and paper, an unfinished letter which I always kept handy for the purpose, and wrote rapidly. It always looks well for a lawyer or an agent confidential to keep a client waiting for a moment or two while he attends to the enormous pressure of correspondence, which, if allowed to accumulate for five minutes, would immediately overwhelm him. I signed and folded the letter, threw it with a nonchalant air into a basket filled to the brim with others of equal importance, buried my face in my hands for a few seconds, as if to collect my thoughts, and finally said, And now, mademoiselle, will you deign to tell me what procures me the honour of your visit? The lovely creature had watched my movements with obvious impatience, a frown upon her exquisite brow but now she plunged straightway into her story. Monsieur, she said with that pretty determined air which became her so well, my name is Estelle Bachelier. I am an orphan, an heiress, and have need of help and advice. I did not know to whom to apply. Until three months ago I was poor and had to earn my living by working in a milliner's shop in the rue saint honore the concierge in the house where i used to lodge is my only friend but she cannot help me for reasons which will presently be made clear to you she told me however that she had a nephew named theodore who was clerk to monsieur ratichon advocate and confidential agent she gave me your address and as i knew no one else i determined to come and consult you I flatter myself that though my countenance is exceptionally mobile, I possess marvellous powers for keeping it impassive when necessity arises. In this instance, a mention of Theodore's name, I showed neither surprise nor indignation. Yet you will readily understand that I felt both. Here was that man once more revealed as a traitor. Theodore had an aunt, of whom he had never as much as breathed a word. He had an aunt, and that aunt a concierge, ipso facto, if I may so express it, a woman of some substance, who no doubt would often have been only too pleased to extend hospitality to the man who had so signally befriended her nephew. A woman, sir, who was undoubtedly possessed of savings which both reason and gratitude would cause her to invest in an old establishment and substantial business run by a trustworthy and capable man, such, for instance, as the bureau of a confidential agent in a good quarter of Paris, which, with the help of a little capital, could be rendered highly lucrative and beneficial to all those concerned. I determined then and there to give Theodore a piece of my mind and to insist upon an introduction to his aunt, after which I begged the beautiful creature to proceed. My father, monsieur, she continued, died three months ago in England, 
whither he had emigrated when I was a mere child, leaving my poor mother to struggle along for a livelihood as best she could. My mother died last year, monsieur, and I have had a hard life. And now it seems that my father made a fortune in England and left it all to me. I was greatly interested in her story. The first intimation I had of it, monsieur, was three months ago, when I had a letter from an English lawyer in London telling me that my father, Jean-Paul Bachelier, that was his name, monsieur, had died out there and made a will leaving all his money, about one hundred thousand francs, to me. Yes, yes, I murmured, for my throat felt parched and my eyes dim. Hundred thousand francs, ye gods! It seems, she proceeded demurely, that my father put it in his will that the English lawyers were to pay me the interest of the money until I married or reached the age of twenty-one. Then the whole of the money was to be handed over to me. I had to steady myself against the table, or I would have fallen over backwards. This godlike creature, to whom the sum of one hundred thousand francs was to be paid over when she married, had come to me for help and advice. The thought sent my brain reeling. I am so imaginative. Proceed, mademoiselle, I pray you, I contrived to say with dignified calm. Well, monsieur, as I don't know a word of English, I took the letter to Monsieur Farewell, who is the English traveller for Madame Cécile, the milliner for whom I work. He is a kind, affable gentleman, and was most helpful to me. He was, as a matter of fact, just going over to England the very next day. He offered to go and see the English lawyers for me, and to bring me back all particulars of my dear father's death and of my unexpected fortune. And, said I, for she had paused a moment, did Monsieur Farwell go to England on your behalf? Yes, monsieur. He went and returned about a fortnight later. He had seen the English lawyers who confirmed all the good news which was contained in their letter. They took, it seems, a great fancy to Monsieur Farwell, and told him that since I was obviously too young to live alone and needed a guardian to look after my interests, they would appoint him my guardian and suggested that I should make my home with him until I was married or had attained the age of twenty-one. Monsieur Farwell told me that though this arrangement might be somewhat inconvenient in his bachelor establishment, he had been unable to resist the entreaties of the English lawyers, who felt that no one was more fitted for such onerous duties than himself, seeing that he was English and so obviously my friend. The scoundrel, the blackguard, I exclaimed in an unguarded outburst of fury. Your pardon, mademoiselle, I added more calmly, seeing that the lovely creature was gazing at me with eyes full of astonishment, not unmixed with distrust. I am anticipating. I am to understand, then, that you have made your home with this, Monsieur Farwell. Yes, monsieur, at number 65, Rue de Pyramide. Is he a married man? I asked casually. He is a widower, monsieur. Middle-aged? Quite elderly, monsieur. 
I could have screamed with joy. I was not yet forty myself. Why, she added gaily, he is thinking of retiring from business. He is, as I said, a commercial traveller in favour of his nephew, Monsieur Adrien Casal. Once more I had to steady myself against the table. The room swam round me. One hundred thousand francs. A lovely creature, an unscrupulous widower, an equally dangerous young nephew. I rose and tottered to the window. I flung it wide open, a thing I never do save at moments of acute crisis. The breath of fresh air did me good. I returned to my desk and was able once more to assume my habitual dignity and presence of mind. In all this, mademoiselle, I said in my best professional manner, I do not gather how I can be of service to you. I am coming to that, monsieur, she resumed after a slight moment of hesitation, even as an exquisite blush suffused her damask cheeks. You must know that at first I was very happy in the house of my new guardian. He was exceedingly kind to me, though there was times already when I fancied she hesitated more markedly this time, and the blush became deeper on her cheeks. I groaned aloud. Surely he's too old, I suggested. Much too old, she assented emphatically. Once more I would have screamed with joy, had not a sharp pang like a dagger thrust shot through my heart. But the nephew, eh? I said jocosely, as indifferently as I could. Young Monsieur Casal, what? Oh, she replied with perfect indifference, I hardly ever see him. Unfortunately, it were not seemly for an avocat and the agent confidential of half the courts of Europe to execute the measures of a polka in the presence of a client, or I would indeed have jumped up and danced with glee. The happy thoughts were hammering away in my mind. The old one is much too old, the young one she never sees, and I could have knelt down and kissed the hem of her gown for the exquisite indifference with which she had uttered those magic words. Oh, I hardly ever see him, words which converted my brightest hopes into glowing possibilities. But as it was, I held my emotions marvellously in check, and with perfect sang-froid once more asked the beauteous creature how I could be of service to her in her need. Of late, monsieur, she said, as she raised a pair of limpid, candid blue eyes to mine, my position in Monsieur Farwell's house has become intolerable. He pursues me with his attentions, and he has become insanely jealous. He will not allow me to speak to anyone, and has even forbidden Monsieur Casal, his own nephew, the house. Not that I care about that she added with an expressive shrug of the shoulders. He has forbidden Monsieur Casal the house, rang like a pain in my ear. Not that she cares about that. Tra-la-la-la-la-la! What I actually contrived to say with a measured and judicial air was, if you deign to entrust me with the conduct of your affairs, I would at once communicate with the English lawyers in your name and suggest to them 
the advisability of appointing another guardian. I would suggest, for instance, eh, that I... How can you do that, monsieur? She broke in somewhat impatiently, seeing that I cannot possibly tell you who these lawyers are. Eh? I queried, gasping. I neither know their names nor their residence in England. Once more I gasped. Will you explain? I murmured. It seems, monsieur, that while my dear mother lived, she always refused to take a single sou from my father, who had so basely deserted her. Of course she did not know that he was making a fortune over in England, nor that he was making diligent inquiries as to her whereabouts when he felt that he was going to die. Thus he discovered that she had died the previous year, and that I was working in the atelier of Madame Cécile, the well-known milliner. When the English lawyers wrote to me at that address, they, of course, said that they would require all my papers of identification before they paid any money over to me. And so, when Monsieur Farwell went over to England, he took all my papers with him and... She burst into tears and exclaimed piteously, Oh, I have nothing now, monsieur, nothing to prove who I am. Monsieur Farwell took everything, even the original letter which the English lawyers wrote to me. Farewell, I urged, can be forced by the law to give all your papers up to you. Oh, I have nothing now, monsieur. He threatened to destroy all my papers unless I promised to become his wife, and I haven't the least idea how and where to find the English lawyers. I don't remember either their name or their address, and if I did, how could I prove my identity to their satisfaction? I don't know a soul in Paris save a few irresponsible millinery apprentices at Madame Cécile, who, no doubt, is hand in glove with Monsieur Farwell. I am all alone in the world and friendless. I have come to you, monsieur, in my distress, and you will help me, will you not? She looked more adorable in grief than she had ever done before. To tell you that at this moment visions floated in my mind before which Dante's vision of paradise would seem pale and tame, were but to put it mildly. I was literally soaring in heaven, for you see, I am a man of intellect and of action. No sooner do I see possibilities before me than my brain soars in an empyrean whilst conceiving daring plans for my body's permanent abode in Elysium. At this present moment, for instance, to name but a few of the beatific visions which literally dazzled me with their radiance, I could see my fair client as a lovely and blushing bride by my side, even whilst Monsieur X and X, the two still unknown English lawyers, handed me a heavy bag which bore the legend one hundred thousand francs. I could see, but I had not the time now to dwell on these ravishing dreams. The beauteous creature was waiting for my decision. She had placed her fate in my hands. I placed my hand on my heart. Mademoiselle, I said solemnly, 
I will be your adviser and your friend. Give me but a few days' grace, every hour, every minute of which I will spend in your service. At the end of that time I will not only have learned the name and address of the English lawyers, but I will have communicated with them on your behalf, and all your papers proving your identity will be in your hands. Then we can come to decision with regard to a happier and more comfortable home for you. In the meanwhile I entreat you to do nothing that may precipitate Monsieur Farwell's actions. Do not encourage his advances, but do not repulse them, and above all keep me well informed of everything that goes on in his house. She spoke a few words of touching gratitude, then she rose, and with a gesture of exquisite grace she extracted a hundred-franc note from her reticule, and placed it upon my desk. Mademoiselle, I protested with splendid dignity, I have done nothing as yet. Ah, but you will, monsieur, she entreated in an accent that completed my subjugation to her charms. Besides, you do not know me. How could I expect you to work for me and not to know if, in the end, I should repay you for all your trouble? I pray you take this small sum without demur. Monsieur Farwell keeps me well supplied with pocket money. There will be another hundred for you when you place the papers in my hands. I bowed to her, and having once more assured her of my unswerving loyalty to her interests, I accompanied her to the door, and anon saw her graceful figure slowly descend the stairs, and then disappear along the corridor. Then I went back to my room, and was only just in time to catch Theodore calmly pocketing the hundred-franc note which my fair client had left on the table. I secured the note, and I didn't give him a black eye, for it was no use putting him in a bad temper when there was so much to do. End of chapter 2, part 1, read by Lars Rolander.